So today we're going to start on week two of our series, Holy Visitation. And I told you that we would talk about a couple different aspects of Christmas. Last week we talked about the symbols of Christmas, the symbolic meaning of the tree, the symbolic meaning of the bows and the holly and the ivy, the symbolic meaning of the advent wreath. And we talked in depth about what those things are. Well, today we're going we're gonna to switch gears a little bit and we're going to talk about people. The people of Christmas. Now, the people of Christmas that I'm going to mention today are not going to be the traditional characters that we see in the Christmas nativity set. We're not going to talk about Mary and Joseph, although they're important people to the story. We're not going to talk about the wise men, although they are important as well. We're not going to talk about the shepherds who saw the angels just pull back heaven and announce that God, the Christ, had come. No, today we're going to talk about the beginning of the Christmas story, the very beginning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. From verse 1 in Matthew chapter 1 through verse 16, there's a long list of names, and it's literally the book of the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says this, the book of the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It gives us an idea of where Jesus' family line comes from. And if you skip all the way down to verse 16, we're not going to read them all because it's a little tedious. It says, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So we get a chronology of events. We get this idea that this person was born and this person was born and that person was born. And between verses 1 and 16 in Matthew chapter 1, there's a list of names that sometimes it's very tedious and hard to read. Most of the time when we talk about the Christmas story, these scriptures are overlooked. Many of the names represent profound stories, and some of these names are found even in our scriptures. The message, this message specifically, is about the people of Christmas. And I want you to understand, I want you to say it with me, that this message is about the people of Christmas, and I'm one of those people. Tell your neighbor, I'm one of those people. The people are evidence of what the king came to do. See, at Christmas time, we don't celebrate just the name of Jesus, but we celebrate his kingship. And the people who are a part of his story represent what he came to actually do, what he came to facilitate here on planet Earth. The glory of Christmas is not just that Jesus came in human flesh as a baby lying in a manger, although it's a very glorious moment, but it came... The glory comes and shows off about what God is going to do in the hearts and the will of the people. That he's going to show off through his lineage what he came to do, how he came to seek and save that which is lost. Some of the people that show up in the Christmas story, they didn't need to be there. They didn't need to be in the chronology or the ge genealogy of Jesus but they are showing up in the Gospels in a very heart-touching ways. These are people who anticipated Christ's coming. These are people of faith who looked for their Messiah. They looked for their promised Savior, someone who would crush sin and death. They looked for their prophesied king, someone to break the back of rule or overrule and oppression. These people looked and were focused on their promised Savior. It's literally where we get the idea of Christmas. Christmas is a, com a combination of words, Christ, Mass. Right? It's the mass or the celebration, the worshipful celebration of the person of Jesus. To celebrate Christmas is to celebrate, it's to understand that we focus on the king of Jesus, his kingship, his kingly nature. It's not Jesus mass. I don't know if you recognize that, but no one goes around saying, well, Mary Jesus mass. Jesus is his name. 
And he came to be our Savior, but his position is Christ, the anointed one, the kingly one. We celebrate in the very name Christmas, we celebrate a worshipful service that is to the glorification of a person as king. He is coming a king. He is our soon coming and conquering king. But when he laid in that manger, he was king. He was king all throughout his life. He will forever be king. He is omnipresent as king. He will constantly operate as king. The Bible tells us, because of his kingly nature, that he is first. That there's a principle about who the person of Christ is, that he is first in our life or he is nothing at all. There is no place for him to be second. And so when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate this crowning achievement that he is first. That's why Matthew starts out with the genealogies, because it puts placement that he came. Though he came through flesh and blood, he came as a king, and he came as a king to be first to be preeminent, to never to be second. We all need some of these, these attributes alive in our life that Jesus would manifest to be king in our life, that he would come to bring his kingdom to us, each of us individually. We celebrate at Christmas time this idea that the king has come. The Messiah, the Christ, the turnaround in the course of history the turnover of new possibilities and new beginnings. Everything new has come in this conquering king. But in order to understand his story, we have to understand the players, the people who make up the background of what Jesus came to do. This passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 1 through verse 16 expresses a unique and in a very unique and precious way that the king has come to turn around the course of human existence. He takes very specific players in his background and he illuminates a story that shows us the potential that we have in Christ. In Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 through 16, it tells us that Christ is, is intent on showing off through individuals. He's showing off their story. He's showing off what could be, what has been. He's showing off their, 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 even though their human nature might have failed, that they have a particular placement in the story of Christ, and it's something that we can't overlook. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is where we literally begin the story. Matthew chapter 1 through chapter 2 starts the celebration of Christmas. The expectation of the anointed one, the king of the earth, would come from heaven to earth in fleshly form. It's an account of, Lou, of, of, I'm sorry, of Matthew, and it's a very exact count, although we can compare that to Luke's account in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Luke, being a physician, couldn't leave out uh, any significant details, so his list is even longer of those who are part of Jesus' family. But Matthew pulls in certain characters to develop a theology of who Christ is and what he came to accomplish. Both genealogies provide to us a background and a story of what Christ came to do. And there's four particular women that we're going to talk about today, and I can't talk about them totally in depth, and, and I'll get there here in, in just a moment. But these four particular women have varied stories. Some of them were... Even the mention of their name was a bit scandalous. And others, there's entire books of the Bible written about their story. These four women have a purpose in the Scripture. You know that at the time, uh, there was no reason to write a woman's name in a genealogy. You could literally write just the names of men and have an accurate historical account of where a person came from. You could have an accurate historical account of a person's background, and you could leave women out totally. 
fact, at that time frame, women, women weren't even seen as persons. They were seen as property. And so to list the name of a woman would, would be something a little bit scandalous. When Matthew wrote the names of these women, he intended for their stories to be woven into the background, the background story of who Jesus is. There's a common denominator for everyone that's on the list, particularly these four women. The common denominator is with us and them that they were impacted by human failure, but these were still people who were allowed to identify in the family of Christ. We all come to Jesus, and it's why I said you're part of the story. We all come to Jesus with the option to be impacted by human failure and frailty. We all come to Jesus knowing that we're not perfect people. We all come to Jesus knowing that we fall short, as the Bible says, of the glory of God. Yet Christ himself embraces us as he embraces these four women in their stories. The significance is that it was a calculated acknowledgement that Matthew knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote down these four women's name. He could have left it with just the principled people, Mary and Joseph and King David and other rulers of the time, those who had accomplished great things, yet in this background and in these stories, God made a calculated, a calculated acknowledgement that the Son of God was linked to them indefinitely, that his story couldn't be told without their background. And if you're wondering who these four women are, the first is Tamar, the second is Rahab, the third is Ruth, and the last is Bathsheba. Some of you might know their stories. For some of you, this will be a little recap of the stories of these biblical characters. For some of you, this might be the first time that you've ever heard of them. Maybe it's the first time you've recognized that they're in the family line of Jesus. And as we look at some of their stories, and I can't go in depth today because I don't have the time, but if we look at the, at the highlights of their stories, you'll recognize Maybe you see yourself in some of their stories. Maybe you see and understand why Jesus wouldn't be intent that their stories be encapsulated in his background. Or maybe it'll open for you a new dimension that you can be one of these in the story of Christ. That you can be one of these in the lineage of Christ. That you can be one whose story is significant. Each one of them has a very moving story in their own. There's, a, there's general statements made about their inclusion, that they're part of the story for this reason or that with, within the history and within Jewish tradition. But what it does mark is that Jesus wants to elevate mankind, that though their stories aren't perfect, that though their stories have background and baggage, that his goal is to simply elevate humanity. Tamar is our first example, and she was first impacted very specifically by the, death of, by the death of two different husbands. If you have your Bibles, if you want to look at her story, it's in Genesis chapter 38. Now she was promised, she was betrothed to one man who ended up passing away. And then her father-in-law betrothed him to his second son who ended up passing away. And her father-in-law intent to make it right said, okay, my third and youngest son, you will be his wife. Yet he didn't follow through in his promise. She was a neglected woman. She was literally a woman, a victim of injustice. What should have been done by her father-in-law, what should have been done by her brother to keep her part of the family, her brother-in-law was not done. And she had to take matters into her own hands. She decided that she would seduce her father-in-law, that she would dress up as a prostitute on one of his journeys, and she would have him, well, avail her for her services. And this happens in the Bible. We see many times where people don't act the way we think Christians should act. or definitely Bible characters. Yet her story is smack in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus. A woman who 
Well, who was used and abused, a woman who was a victim of injustice, a woman who was neglected and took matters into her own hands. And she betrayed a man. And then they find her, her belly getting swollen with this baby as it grows in her stomach. And they literally point the finger at her and say, you have been messing around. We know you don't have a husband. The two you had were dead, and the one that you're promised to, you have not married yet. You've been messing around. And she looked at her father-in-law and said, it was you. It was you. Your sins have found you out. Remember that trip you took? I've got proof. Here's your staff. Here's your seal. Here's your cord. It's proof it was you. This deceptive nature, this deceptive story, this woman just trying to make right something that was wrong but taking matters into her own hand and not allowing God to have his just day and not allowing God to have his victory. This woman taking things into her own hands and deceiving people around her, being something that she's not, is right smack in the middle of the story of Jesus. She's one of the, of the principal people in the story of Christmas. We can't actually understand what Christmas is all about without understanding this woman, Tamar. Some of us might find ourselves in her story Maybe we've been wronged, so we put on a face, a facade. Maybe we've been wronged, so we go do things that we're not proud of. Maybe we've been wronged and we've tried to make it right by our own hand, and we've gone and we have, well, we've tricked people. We've done things that we shouldn't. We've stolen from folks. We've, we've moved into areas of life that we're not proud of. God can still use your story. It doesn't deject you from the family of God. In fact, he welcomes those in who aren't perfect and literally lays Tamar as one of the foundational pieces of the story of Christ. The next one is this woman, Rahab. It's funny that the first two are two women who were prostitutes. There's no way around this in Jesus. You see, you think your family history is bad. This dude's messed up. The second one, Rahab. Rahab is generally known with the little uh, uh, identifier, Rahab the harlot. If you study scripture very often... In fact, Rahab, the, the, the Midrash is a, is a way that the Jewish people used to write commentary on Scripture. And the Midrash actually says from the, the writings of the rabbis, the musings of the rabbis, says that she was one of four women who were absolutely beautiful, so beautiful that the world hasn't known beauty like that. In fact, some of the rabbis write that she was so beautiful that the mention of her name would cause men to lust in their time. That's how beautiful this woman was. She owned a small hotel, and in that hotel, on the backside of the hotel, was a brothel where she herself was a prostitute. The city that she lived in was big, and it was walled. It was the promised land that God's people were searching after. The, the land within this walled city was the promise that God had set aside for his people, and she met three of their spies. She met these spies as they were spying out the land that God would give them. And in that moment, she had a change of heart. She went from prostitute to hero. She hid them in her hotel. She covered them so that the guards chasing them wouldn't find them. And she laid out a way of escape for them. And to such a degree that these men said, when this city falls, God's told us you'll be protected. You allowed God's people to accomplish God's plan. And because of that, you will be protected. She lays out a cord outside of her window so they know exactly which portion of the wall shouldn't fall. Because her hotel was built right into the wall of the city that ended up falling around as God's people took their promised land. In that story in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9 and 13, she was bound up in destructive habits. 
The only thing that she knew was prostitution and the prostitution lifestyle. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. She was not a good person. She's someone that we would walk by and think, how can you consistently give in to this lifestyle? How can you consistently give in to this way of being? Yet Jesus puts her right in the middle of his own lineage, right in the middle of his story, right in the middle of the pronouncement of his birth. That this woman and her change of heart allowed for the life of Christ to actually exist. That God uses the wave that is her genealogy to ride on for his son to be born. Her story matters because what it tells us is it doesn't matter how far off from God you feel you are. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle was before Jesus. That if you make the determined sacrifice for God's plan and God's purpose to happen, that even you can be saved. That regardless of how far away you feel from God, in the moment that you say, God, your will, your purpose, that I'll go after that, that he says he'll save you. The next one in our list is the woman Ruth. An entire book of the Bible is written on her, if you're unfamiliar in the Old Testament. She was literally a beggar gleaning the corners of the field. She was a foreigner without a promise. Here's a woman who finds herself in a foreign land. She is husbandless. She is homeless. And just to survive, she and her mother-in-law are just taking what they can from the corners of the fields. They're taking whatever grain they can find from the corners of the fields. The owner of the field comes by, a man of royal nature in Boaz, and recognizes how beautiful she is. It's a woman that he hasn't seen the likes of in his kingdom, and he has to get to know this woman. She's a foreigner from a foreign land with no promise, with no one, no home, no place to call her own. Yet God sees fit that her beauty is something that is so striking that it draws the attention of a king. But it wasn't done there. Boaz actually had to go to her family and say, can I take her in? Because the responsibility was on another man. But Boaz had to say, I'll pay off those debts and I'll bring her into my home. He was so intent on having her as his bride. He was so intent in bringing her into that, well, now royal status that he paid off of her debt and he brought her into his family. And from that lineage, we have the greatest king that Israel will ever see. Because out of Ruth and Boaz comes Obed and out of Obed comes Jesse and out of Jesse comes David. The greatest king that Israel will ever know came from a woman who was a beggar in a foreign land gleaning off the corners of the field. I don't care how far away you feel you are from God. I don't care how far away you feel your purpose is from God. It only takes one person to recognize the glory and the royalty inside of you for your life to change forever. It takes one encounter with the right person and this is the story that's woven into the Christmas story, that's woven into the genealogy of Jesus, that in one moment that your life can take in a completely different course of action. And this is the story of Ruth. The next one is one that I actually I love because, well, it focuses on the grandson, particularly of Ruth, or the great-grandson, Bathsheba. For those of you that know the story of Bathsheba, Bathsheba was a woman whose husband was under the army of David, one of the greatest kings and possibly the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Bathsheba found herself doing what she does, as all women do, like to, be, like to smell clean and pretty. And she found herself bathing on the roof. It was the custom of that time. 
That's where, that's where the bath was. The water runs downhill, right? So if you're going to use the water and it's going to go into cisterns and tanks and get pushed out of the city, you have to go to a high place. Otherwise, it pulls up. So they would bathe on their roofs. It wasn't something that she was doing to show off. It wasn't something she was doing that was out of the custom of the norm. Yet David sees her bathing. And he says, oh, I've got to have this woman. I've got to have this woman. You know what I mean by I've got to have this woman. David meant, I want this woman. I want to know her as a man knows his wife. He brought her into his chambers. And and in my opinion, this is probably the first instance of the the Me Too movement that we can see in the chronology of, of Jewish history in a kingly status. Like David was the first king to go way too far. He was the first king to push the envelope. He was the first king to do something where he used his power to manipulate another person to such a degree that he felt so bad that he he called her husband in and said, maybe you should go and and see your wife while you're off duty. And he said, no, if if my men can't go home, I'm not going home. I'll sleep with them. David couldn't figure out how to fix his problem because there's a likelihood she could be pregnant. David said, all right, I'll take, I'll take the man and I'll put him towards the front of the infantry and when he goes out there, surely he'll die and her husband is killed in battle. David, to cover up his sin, literally murders a woman's husband. Not by his own hand, but by his decree. And from that genealogy comes Jesus. Now Bathsheba is a very interesting story mentioned in Matthew because all we really need to know is that Jesus came from a kingly background. All we really need to know is that he came from the line of David, and it will fulfill the messianic prophecies. Yet Matthew decides to take the negative side of something very positive, the background that's negative and bad and that we don't want people to see, and how David treated this woman and how he murdered her husband, and yet Matthew puts it forefront and in the center and says, no, no, this is part of Jesus' story. That maybe you come from a background where you've been used and abused, that maybe you come from a background it isn't fair what they've done to you. That maybe you come from a background and your story is broken and your heart has been broken and your person has been broken, yet Jesus can use that brokenness and bring everlasting life. These four women, they carve out and mark something of the story of Jesus. That we have a Savior that is not ashamed to connect with people like this. He is not ashamed of any one of their stories. In fact, because it's written in Scripture, they will last for generation to generation to generation. I am not the first pastor to preach on these women, and I will likely not be the last to preach on their story around Christmas. Why? Because it matters. And just so you're aware, I am smart enough not to give this message on Christmas Eve, we were working with a, this is hilarious, we were working with a pastor on Christmas Eve, and they had Christmas Eve service like we have, and he gets in and he's talking about these stories and he talks about particularly uh, Tamar and he starts talking about her being part of Jesus's lineage and he uses the word whore a couple times. It's just the way John talks. And his young 10-year-old daughter's in the audience and his wife comes screaming out after church, grabs him, throws him up against the wall and she's like, Four foot nothing. John Newsom, don't you ever say whore in church again? Getting just tongue lashed from his rabid chihuahua of a wife. It was, it was awesome. It was awesome. In fact, I learned something that day. Run by your sermon prep to your wife first. 
maybe she'll tell you what not to say. But it doesn't take away from the fact that these women are real stories that are woven into the story of Jesus. We can't get away telling the story of Jesus without, without telling the broken relationships that happen in these people's lives. Jesus doesn't hide from them. In fact, he connects them. He draws them close. They're part of the family. because it, it's, it's because it's what he's come to do as king. As king, as Messiah, what he's come to do is take even the most broken story, even the most devious of plots, even the most hurt of individuals, and raise you up. We cannot look at that baby in the manger without understanding Christ has come. He is our anticipated coming king, but he came for a purpose, to raise us up so that we could be all that we could be in him. He brings them close because they're family. They are what we would call enfranchised. We understand the idea of disenfranchised, people who don't get the rights and privileges that they should have, but do we understand what enfranchisement means? It means that we're part of the family. It means freedom. It means that we have certain rights. These women were enfranchised. They were part of the family now. They have a place to call home. They have a place to draw to of family resources that can be spent at the calling of that name, Jesus. These women are now part of the story, the storyline that leads to Christ's forgiveness, the storyline that leads to Jesus putting the world to right, the storyline that fixes all of the world's wrongs. These women are now cornerstone pieces of that story. We have been enfranchised with Jesus. We have been given a family name, his name. And his name is forgiveness. His name is victory. His name is wholeness. His name is health. His name is the bondage breaker. His name is the name that's above every name. If we would understand that we have now been grafted into the family we have been pulled into the family of Christ, that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, and that we now lay in the lineage, in the very line of Christ, we would think totally different about ourselves. We would act in a totally different way. We wouldn't allow anyone to put us down, to beat us down, to berate us. We would stand up with our back strong, knowing we are a child of the king. We wouldn't allow sickness to ravage our body because sickness has no place in the king's family. We wouldn't allow ourselves to be impoverished and to be brought down with poverty where there's nothing but negatives in our bank account. We would understand that God's people have provision. And though you might not know how to get it, you might not know where it comes from, that he'll bring it into your life honestly. If we understand understood who we were and that in our story, in our mess, and in our baggage, that we are grafted into the story of Jesus, it would change our perspective. We have been given the resources to become exactly what God wants us to be. Each of these stories had a turnaround moment. Each of these stories had a moment in history where they turned around from something very negative to something very good. Some of them their storyline was just paving the way for the future. Let me, let me help you, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa. You don't know what storyline you're paving the way for. Don't be negative to the idea that you could be paving the way for the next generation. Don't be negative to the idea that your kids will stand on your shoulders and even your spiritual kids will stand on your shoulders. Don't be negative to the concept that what God has brought in your life, though, was struggle and it was hard and it was difficult, that you have an opportunity to pave the way for something great for the next generation. Why do we do what we do here? Because we know we're not it. That unless Jesus 
comes back that this building will be filled and this building will be filled multiple times over with one generation after another. That it won't stop with us. It won't stop with a one tenure church. That it will continue on until Christ comes back because he is always concerned with the hearts of people. And there are people all throughout the Quad Cities and there will continue to be those who are far from God and they need to know this message. Whatever your or my brokenness is, whatever shame that we would hang around our neck, whatever broken issue that we bring to the table, Jesus is not ashamed to put his arms around you. He is not ashamed to identify with you, pull you in, and call you family. There is no story that can be written in your background that is greater than any of the huge mistakes that we see in the life of Christ, that we see, I'm sorry, that we, that we see in the lineage of Christ. There is no doubt that all the stories that lay out of his genealogy could point to one mistake after another, one failure after another, but there are also great stories of victory. And the way these great stories of victory have a turnaround moment is when the focus comes back to the plan and the purpose and the will of God. Will you come back? Will you turn your story Will you write your ship? Will you come face to face with the acknowledgement that Christ's story in you is what matters most? That Christmas is not just about anticipating a baby to be born and presents under a tree. All that symbolism is very beautiful and very important, but it comes to the fact that you are renewed in Christ, that everlasting life is not just about life forever, but it's the Zoe life, the life we have in Christ, the God kind of life that we take on when we allow ourselves to be brought into the family of God. We are his. We are received by him. And as that old uh, lyric from Hark the Herald Angels sings, that, whole, that old lyric says that pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Pleased as man. He was pleased to come in flesh and blood. He was pleased to come wrapped a baby in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. He was pleased to put away his, his divine nature just for a moment to put on the idea of human flesh to come as one of us. He was pleased to come as man, but he was also pleased to come to dwell with us. He came to dwell amongst us. He came not just to be Jesus that we speak of, but Jesus that we speak to. He came not just to be a God that we serve, but a God that we have fellowship with and relationship with. You know, it's one thing to have a relationship with someone that you pass by, you shake their hand, it's good to see you, brother, it's good to see you, sister. It's another thing to bring them close, to have conversation, to connect with them, to meet them eyeball to eyeball and knee to knee, and to get to know them, and to intimately know who they are. This is the God that we serve. This is what these Christmas carols talk about. That he would be Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us. Listen, you are part of the family. I don't care how broken your, your background is. I don't care how messed up your story is. I don't care what your family tree looks like, whether it forks or doesn't fork. You are part of the family. God loves you just the way you are, just where you are at. But he loves you way too much to leave you there. He will expect you to come up to his level, but in your time, as you are marching this line with him, as you are pushing down this journey with him, Jesus loves you right where you are. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And these four stories teach us that no matter how far you feel from God, how abused and abandoned you might feel, that he came, that you could be part of the family. Amen? This is the story that we share at Christmas. 
that regardless of the situation, regardless of the brokenhearted nature, regardless of the issue that's in front of us, that those who would call Christ their Savior, they are part of the family. Our goal is not to let one Christmas go by where we don't exemplify and show to others they can be part of the family. In their brokenness, in their hurt, in their pain, they can be part of the family. That there's no story that's too torrid and there is no story that's too broken that Jesus wouldn't welcome them in. It's one of the things I hate to hear when I think about the concept of people being far from God. They say, I don't know if I can go to that church because I don't know if they'd accept me. They're talking about an institution because they obviously don't know Jesus. The institution might break down, the institution may fail you, but Christ never will. 